how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, and more, where we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and methods of a creative life. This episode is brought to you by FreelancerClass.com. At FreelancerClass, you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money as a writer, marketer, graphic designer, virtual assistant, or an accountant from the comfort of your own home. Make a little extra money or replace your income at FreelancerClass.com. In this interview, documentary filmmaker Jacob Kornbluth talks about personal storytelling, how he went from comedy to the economy, archival material, why he was attracted to big ideas as a filmmaker, and how to find the authentic moment. Saving Capitalism follows former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich as he takes his book and his views to the heart of conservative America to speak about our economic system and present big ideas for how to fix it. I, I think I always wanted to tell stories. Um, I always wanted to be a, a storyteller. Um, I started out, I think, wanting to be a novelist. I grew up as an avid reader and less of a movie watcher. Um, we didn't really watch much television in my house. I didn't see many movies growing up. But um, uh, I always knew I wanted to tell stories. And then at some point, um, when I was actually pretty old for a filmmaker, like in my 20s, I saw some movies that felt like I was watching um, my own family. My, you know, something that really resonated with me personally when um, I discovered sort of personal filmmaking. Um, it really felt like a breakthrough for me. I felt sort of um, inspired and by this kind of uh, film and really made me want to take the storytelling into this visual storytelling world. But it always started from the place of story rather than the place of, uh, of, of you know, making movies for me. What attracted you? You've done um, two of these documentaries about finance. What kind of led you in that direction? You know, it's a really strange story about how I wound up making films about uh, the economy because um, I started out my career as a filmmaker in comedy. Um, I didn't have any kind of um, economic background. I'd say the only thing that really qualifies me to talk about uh, economics is that I grew up uh, poor. I grew up um, without much money, and I grew up in sort of a unique environment where when I was very young, I was in New York City, and then I moved, and it was kind of a liberal place, if you want to put it that way. And then I moved to rural Michigan, which is um, a more, um, which was a very conservative place. And I grew up sort of in both, which you might call the red states and the blue states of America in sort of equal parts. So I grew up as I, you know, both with a keen sense of who gets what in society, uh, because I didn't have, I didn't grow up with much money. And I also grew up um, sort of with a sense of um, both how the blue states and the red states see the economy and see it quite differently. Um, so I was thinking about this my whole life and I was always sort of attracted to big ideas. I was always attracted to what you might call 
those paradigm shifting moments when you um, when it changes the way you think and you see the whole world. And um, big making big ideas personal was really kind of my way into the story of the economy. Um, when I made Inequality for All with Reich, I, I had this epiphany that the story of widening economic inequality was essentially the story of my entire life to that moment. Um, um, uh, I was born in 1972, and pretty much my entire life, the economic inequality had been widening. And it felt like it made a lot of sense to me about how um, my personal experience had tracked through the world, and it made me want to tell that story um, in a way that felt both personal and that told um, this kind of larger conceptual story in the same, uh, you know, vehicle. So what we found with Reich uh, was that he was perfect messenger for that message. There's a way to sort of uh, have um, a character who people can really connect with and relate to as the kind of um, uh, emotional spine of the story. And then it's a, you can sort of use that emotional spine as a sort of jumping off point to tell this kind of larger conceptual story of the economy. But um, to really learn how enough about the economy to tell the story, I, for inequality for all, it took me about a year. I always call it my sort of personal graduate school. I had to read for a year about all different kinds of thinkers on the economy, conservative ones, liberal ones, everybody in between, to just know enough to pick up a camera and make that film. And um, I always say that the thing that I relate to most in film is um, a good story, that it's less to me about the, um, the you know, I, I don't make issue films so that people can feel like they're taking their spinach. I like to feel like I'm making films that are entertaining and fun to watch. Um, so in some ways, telling a film about the economy has the same sort of, uh, root for me as making a comedy does and that I want a character on a journey who learns something along the way. How do you first, it seems like some of this has become almost pop culture with, you know, some of the recent Michael Lewis mo uh, books turned into movies. How did you first go about trying to make this complex subject interesting? You know, um, that's a very good question. I mean, when, when I was first trying to pitch uh, a movie about the economy for inequality for all. Um, nobody wanted to fund it. It seemed very boring. It seemed like a lecture. Um, and it seems like, uh, you know, people would be feeling like they're going to school. But um, I think I thought that um, if you could find a character, I wrote at the top of my board as I was making this film, um, you have to believe the messenger to hear the message. So, I sort of had this sense that if you could tie the personal storytelling, the thing that I had sort of grown up loving, the sort of personal narratives that sort of a character on a journey with obstacles to a goal, overcoming something. If you could tie a lot of that sort of traditional narrative structure to a big conceptual story, um, you would have a very interesting formula. Um, and Really, that's what we've done for Inequality for All, and again, with uh, Saving Capitalism here in my collaboration with Robert Reich. Um, we take this character and put him on a personal journey, and we use that as a sort of vehicle to sort of unpack these larger conceptual stories. And, you know, I think that's sort of a unique um, and I hope meaningful contribution to how to take on these big issues. 
because um, you know I always try to think of the films as I'm making them, not as talking about the big issue, but as really sort of tracking a character on a journey, just like I would for any other film. How did you go about some of your choices as far as the the stylized, like the the animation, the timeline you use, some of the interviews? Um, did you work with an editor? How did, how did some of all of that come about for a documentary filmmaker? You know, um, this is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, how to integrate uh, graphics, characters, and editing into one sort of seamless process. Um, when I started out making films, uh, graphics were in some ways an afterthought. Um, you would shoot a film and you'd leave sort of a black hole in the edit of like 10 seconds. And then you'd ask a, 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 a graphics house to fill that 10 second hole with a graph or something like that. And what I did starting with inequality for all and, and again through saving capitalism is I, I tried really hard to integrate the graphics and the editing and the character storytelling into one process so that it wasn't sequential, but all happening at one time. Um, this is in some ways more expensive and time consuming of a process because you, you need to have the graphics people watching early cuts of the edit and you need to sort of have a free flowing uh, exchange of information between the edit room and the people doing the graphics. But we've worked really hard on sort of <clears throat> making that process happen because the results, I hope, is that the, the graphic storytelling is integrated in with the narrative storytelling um, in a way that feels almost seamless. Um, this is, uh, you know, these people, these graphics people, I make short videos all the time. So I keep uh, a tab, I keep tabs on who I think is, you know, really great graphics people and who I think are really great narrative uh, editors. And my goal is to try to, you know, put them all together in one suit to create a process that, um, that I think creates a film where the information is integrated as a character, just like any other kind of narrative character might in a different film. Do they, uh, to a degree, do they kind of pitch you ideas? Like one example comes to mind would be the, I think this is used more than once in the film is like the faceless suit that we're seeing where the money passes through. Is that what, has someone come to you with that kind of idea or how does that really get chosen and everything? Yeah, no, the, the, the graphics team, um, uh, had, uh, a very strong voice in the look and feel of these graphics. Um, it, it, I, it was very important to me that they be different than the graphic style for inequality for all for the last uh, film I did with Reich. And they, you know, we looked at a bunch of examples of sort of um, different kinds of styles and, and, you know, what they, uh, and they wound up suggesting it was this kind of intuitive style, this style that feels hand-drawn um, made from kind of real, materials, if you will, so that, um, and, and, and something that feels kind of rough around the edges so that it feels very human created. I wanted to feel like a human made, uh, the graphics. I think that was my contribution, but I think their idea was to have it, the style be this kind of, um, uh, intuitive flowing morphing ideas from one graphic to the next. Um, but within that style, what you're trying to find are the kind of iconic images that feel like they tell, you know, the story simply and that you can return to in different animation pieces. And there's a few pieces like the faceless guys in the suit and the handshake with the money coming out of the sleeve. 
that I believe were initially all the um, the ideas of uh, of uh, the graphics team, who I think was uh, quite brilliant. I was in Washington about a month ago and just walked around to the, and it took a few hours to see everything that you can see on a walking tour. Um, and then I noticed in the movie there's like three or four shots, and it's only a few seconds. What kind of footage did you have for this, and how do you boil down um, not only the interviews but everything? How do you decide what really makes the film and, and, and narrow that down? You know, it, it's a it's another um, you know to me fascinating question, and I'm really appreciating this because it gets I get to talk about making the film. So many of the interviews that I've done uh, have been about the politics, um, but you know. We have hundreds of hours of footage um, for a documentary like this. And in fact, I felt like it could have been uh, maybe six hours <laughs> of, uh, you know, different pieces of um, that were, we went into each one deeply. Um, but, you know, there was a few challenges to making this. One of them was once you get down to, um, you might call it a certain depth to the story, um, you try to focus on the thread that is pulling that depth through. So if you're trying to make a movie that's like, you know, feature length, uh, call it, you know, 70 to 90 minutes, um, we had to cut those several hundred hours of footage down to, you know, that length. And that, that, that means that, you know, we go all of the stuff that could have been, you know, uh, dove into much deep, deeper, we had to sort of stay at a certain level, I think, you know, if that makes some sense. Um, so we, we spent a day in D.C. We traveled around, um, uh, you know, we shot, you know, all the major, um, you know, uh, landmarks and we, we did a few interviews. Um, I think you could do a whole movie about D.C., though. I mean, there's a there's this story of the change of D.C. from a, you know, CD place in the 1970s where, you know, sort of idealistic folks went to try to make a difference and make a better world to a place now that's sort of like an emerald city on a hill. That's one of the most, um, I think, six of the 10 most expensive counties uh, in the country are the ones surrounding Washington, D.C. Now, um, home prices are through the stratosphere. Restaurants are, um, you know, all these white napkin restaurants with heavy cutlery and, you know, 60 to $80 steaks are being sold. I mean, it's really become like this amazing, um, you know, example of uh, what happens when concentrated uh, economic inequality meets the desire to use that economic power to turn it into political power in the form of lobbying. Um, Washington, D.C. is, uh, you know, the epitome of that. Um, so, uh, I think there's much more we could have done with all of, you know, with Washington, D.C., but for the purpose of this film, it just becomes a symbol of real people not being able to um, to access the levers of government in the way that uh, money and interests do, and you get a few shots. <laughs> um, explain this for those who are not familiar with it, but if someone wanted to make their own documentary, um, the clips you're using from the news, from from press conferences, things like that. Is that is that considered educational footage? You have to ask permission to use that. How did you go about choosing that as well? Yeah, no. If if you are there's a several different ways you can bring in um, archive what they call archival material into a documentary, and one of them is through um, fair use. 
And this is why you get to see all the clips on the news at night without people paying for them, is that if it's got uh, uh, educational purpose, um, you can, you know, pull clips and use them uh, as they, you know, as, as you find them. Um, and you don't have to pay for them. And then there's another uh, kind of archival material which needs to be purchased. And, um, you know, when you're making a film like this that's so archival heavy, um, you wind up buying a lot of the, the footage. And, um, uh, you know, that can be a major expense for a documentary like this. I think it was one of our biggest expenses, actually, was the purchasing of footage. Um, and it was also for my last documentary, Inequality for All. So um, if you're making your own film, you can basically use whatever you can find on the Internet. Often it's too low resolution to use in a feature film that's going to be projected uh, largely. But you, you pull these in sort of in... Um, uh, you know, off the internet or from wherever you can get them. And, and, you know, you, then you need a fair use lawyer to see if, if you can use it for, you know, educational purposes. And then if you can't, then you have to purchase it. And, um, you know, this can be very expensive stuff. Uh, CBS charges, uh, you know, hundreds of dollars for, um, a few seconds of using their footage. And, you know, it just, it, everyone's different, but it just, does wind up being a, a large expense for a film. Between these two documentaries or over your career as a filmmaker, are, what are some of your beliefs, um, behaviors, or habits that have changed over the years? Beliefs or habits that have changed? Well, um, I think um, the first thing is um, it's less about something that's changed and more about something that I feel like has evolved just slightly, which is... Um, Making documentary, I always am after the authentic moment. You always want to find something that feels real, that you you know your BS meter uh, doesn't go off, that feels like real people you know having a real experience. And the technical piece of filmmaking, the fact that you have to set up a camera, have it have proper lights, have it composed properly, um, the technical parts of filmmaking are often at odds with the authentic. Um, part with capturing that authentic moment. So often I, you wander into an interview with a subject and they right away say something that you just think is gold. It's the thing that you, um, you know, would make the best piece of the film, but your camera is not on yet and the lights aren't upright and, you know, the, the, all the, the sound's not properly plugged in. So um, what I have found is the better I've gotten at the technical parts of filmmaking, um, the more I want that technical uh, stuff to get out of the way, <laughs> you know, I want to get good enough at it that I just stop thinking about it um, because you want to capture those authentic pieces. But I've gotten much better at that. So, you know, before I go into an interview with somebody, I'll make sure the sound guy has the boom turned on and ready <laughs> and ready to go. And somebody's filming the camera. And, you know, it might not technically be perfect, but I'll film that second of shaking hands with the subject and see what they have to say. And sometimes it's nothing, but, um, you know, I don't miss those moments as much anymore just because I've been doing it long enough that I, um, I know that if I care about that authentic moment, I have to, you know, prepare technically to make sure that the technical part of filmmaking doesn't get in the way of that. 
What do you think are the most common um, bad advice or bad me- bad recommendations you hear um, as as a filmmaker? <laughs> well, one thing is uh, is that there is anything about filmmaking that you don't know. Um, when I was a young filmmaker, uh, people kept telling me, you know, there's all these kind of, you know, smart people who know more about this stuff than you do. So don't make a film yet, you know, take your time, you know, don't push, et cetera, et cetera. And I have found that you have to be pretty stupid uh, and irrationally confident to wind up m- making a film at first because, you know, there's really never a good reason to uh, believe that you should make a film. Um, you don't know. I mean, it, it really is. You hear all the time about how many people try and, you know, it doesn't work out to make films. But, you know, the other piece that you hear is that, you, you know, the only way to know for sure if it's for you is to do it. Um, I didn't go to film school. I didn't study uh, film. I didn't have family money that was behind me to make a film to begin with. So if there's ever anybody who, who says, you know, you can't do this or that um, you don't know enough or you're not, you know, ready to do it. I always say, you know, like it's the same reason why I didn't feel like I knew, you know, I wasn't an economist or wasn't, didn't have a background in, um, in economic ideas, but I wanted to make a film about the economy. Well, I just spent a year reading about it. And, you know, I had never gone to film school, but before I made my first film, I just read some books. And then I picked up a camera and made my first film, Haiku Tunnel, which wound up at the Sundance Film Festival and was released by Sony Pictures Classics. So um, there's no guarantee that says, um, you know, it's going to work out to make a film, but the only way you know is to do it. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter to get your free download of the ebook. How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block, which includes advice from writers such as Aaron Sorkin, William Monaghan, and Carrie Fukunaga. The newsletter will also keep you up to date on future episodes, new articles, and more. Sign up at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com.